Well, hello everyone. It's Earl Breon here. I really don't have a lot to add for this episode other than to say that, uh, unfortunately, uh, my guest, Howard J. Ross, uh, was having some minor technical issues. So you'll notice a couple of times where there's some uh, audio dropout and and a little garbling going on. Uh, Fortunately, it's not terrible, and I think you can uh, easily still make out what he is saying. He's got some very important messages through this uh, through this podcast that are very timely, and I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation we had as much as I had having the conversation with Howard. Um, check out the links. Make sure you familiarize yourself with the work that he and some of the other folks we talk about in this podcast have done. Right now is the time to really have these conversations and make a difference. With that, I'm just going to let it grow right into this interview with Howard J. Ross. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, I've got a guest that, uh, you know, I, I don't use this term a lot, but uh, I would say this is the first guest I've had that I'm actually kind of geeked out to uh, speak with. Uh My guest is Howard J. Ross. He's a lifelong social justice advocate and a principal in Udarta Consulting. He is previously the founding partner of Cook Ross, Inc. Ross is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He has authored several books, including Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart, and Reinventing Diversity, Transforming Organizational Community to Strengthen People, Purpose, and Performance. The revised edition of his best-selling book, Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives, describes how to bridge the divide in our increasingly polarized society. Uh, and, and that's that last book, the, the original version, is one of the reasons why I'm kind of geeked out to be speaking with you today, because... My partner and I reference your work in that book quite a bit in what we do. So, uh, mm. Howard, thank you very much for, for being on the show today. Oh, Earl, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that gracious introduction. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just You've done a lot of great work over, over the, the years, and I, I don't know how many of my listeners have heard of you before. I'm hoping quite a few, uh, but my, my sincerest hope is after this— Everybody goes out and picks up a copy of at least Everyday Bias. Mm. Um, But before we kind of really jump into that part of it, I want to start you off where I start off all of my guests. The term burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, I can I can talk about that in two ways, Earl. I can talk about it sort of theoretically, if you will, and what it means for me is sort of the responsibility of leadership, and that is that... Um, I think when I hear that term, I think about, you know, people who range from the Air Force generals who I've worked with, the CEOs of companies who I've worked with, the, you know, people in, in leadership organizations of nonprofits or even political leaders who I've worked with. And and the weight of responsibility of people in those leadership positions, not only to have their organizations function well, but to also hold in their hands um uh, the lives of the people who work for them and um, and all the aspects of that. And then on a more personal level, having been in that role, you know, having run a company, it was only, you know, we only had at most 50 people when I sold uh, Cook Ross back in 2018. Um, I also know the personal feelings associated with that and everything from what people call loneliness at the top to um, the weight sometimes of making decisions, particularly in difficult times like we're in right now, that affect the lives of people and having to make the decisions that are that are um, for the good of, of the most possible people, knowing full well that sometimes, you know, it creates difficulty for, for some people. So um, so I can see it both personally and and more theoretically. Yeah, no, I, I like that approach. And, and you know, I mean, because it, it it does. I mean, it's going to mean something a little bit different based on which lens you look at it through. So, uh, so good answer. I, I like that mm-hmm. one. Uh, Thanks. So in your book, Everyday Bias, you kind of come out guns blazing, if you will, 
And, and your very first chapter is titled, If You Are Human, You Are Biased. Now, I'm sure you get this a lot. Some people read that and be like, yeah, well, not me. I'm not biased. I don't have a biased bone <laughs> in my body. Uh, how do you respond to that? They're wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> nice and simple. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. I think, I think that, that's really at the heart of what I'm trying to communicate in the book, Earl, is that um, unfortunately we've, we've associated bias with only the negative aspect of it. And so when somebody says, you know, I'm not biased, what they usually mean is I'm not trying to be racist. I'm not trying to be sexist. I'm not trying to, you know, I see myself as a fair person. Um, and that's understandable. And, and, you know, I certainly honor that people who, who in, in their intention are trying to be as fair as possible and as equitable as possible. But the reality is that we know from looking not only at the social science research behind it, but also the neurocognitive science research, that the brain works in a particular way. Um, and, and the way it works, let me, let me put it in a simple format um, so that we could take it out of the very simply. Um, you go up to a stove uh, and every day, and you don't even think about it, you turn on the stove and you put you know, you put the teapot on or whatever else, and then you turn off the stove and you pour your teapot and, you know, you do this all the day. At some point, you don't even think about it. You're having conversations while you're doing it. But then one day, something happens and you burn your hand on the stove. And all of a sudden, for the next period of time, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, a month, or two months, or, you know, however long it takes, you approach that stove very differently because all of a sudden you're aware of the danger in that stove. Well, the mind is designed to work this way. It's designed to protect ourselves, um, to protect us from the environment that we're in. Uh, the primary function of our personality, of the structure of our mind, is to keep us safe in life. And so if we take that into the domain of people, we meet people all of the time, and we have an initial first feeling about them. Now, sometimes that's a positive feeling, you know, something about that person I like, we say. Um, sometimes uh, we have a negative reaction, like that person doesn't feel safe to me, or, or we see one person, we say, that person looks smart, this person doesn't look so smart, that person looks like they have it together, this person's a mess. You know, we might make that judgment based on a particular personality quality, we might make that judgment based on race or gender or socioeconomic status or body size or somebody might could be wearing tattoos or, or piercings. But all of these things um, uh, make that quick, that quick hit to our brain and our brain very quickly determines safe or unsafe. Is this going to work for us or not? I have a good friend, Sukhvinder Obi, who's a, um, a brain scientist at Canada, McMaster University, who says our brains have, designed, has, have been designed to be good enough most of the time. <laughs> um, and so what we do is we gather that information we see. I look at your smile, let's say. That smile in milliseconds, 0.2 milliseconds here, goes to my brain and the, the limbic system in my brain runs to the memory function of my brain, the hippocampus, and says, it's like going through the file cabinet. What does this smile remind me of? Oh, he reminds me of that kid who was a bully in fourth grade who beat me up. I better watch out for this guy. Now, all of this stuff is unconscious. And so I have that feeling, something about this guy I don't like. Or I see the same thing, the same smile. The file cabinet says, oh, this, this reminds me of my cousin Johnny, who I love dearly. Oh, you know, something about this guy I like. And, and this is happening all the time with us as human beings. And again, I like the way you, you know you you relate that because it's something we can all we've probably all experienced at some point in time. You know, I mean, as you were telling that story, I remember being a young kid and it being Christmas time. Uh, you know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of sweets in the house at the time, but around Christmas time, my my mom and grandmother uh, would and all the family members would bake sweets, and we had cookies all over the place. And you sure. know, I love chocolate chip cookies, and this one particular Christmas, like I just. I went to town on the cookies. And I remember my grandmother warning me, if you keep eating those cookies like that, you're going to get sick and then you're never going to want them again. Sure enough, I ended up getting sick <laughs> off the cookies and it took me several years before I could even stomach the smell of a chocolate chip cookie again. Mm -hmm. and, 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 exactly. And it was that uh, if I'm understanding things right, it was really kind of that safety thing. My body, because of the reaction, told me, you, you, you got sick from this and it created this warning signal to tell me these are things that have made you sick in the past. Be careful. Exactly right. That's exactly right, Earl. Now let's take that same circumstance and put it into what doesn't seem at all related, but is actually quite analogous in terms of how the brain works. 
And that is, let's say you grow up seeing images of black men uh, portrayed in the media as dangerous um, stereotypes. Uh, you know, and we know this is true, by the way, because people like the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania and other places have studied and shown that that black men overwhelmingly are shown more often as criminals or a negative uh, in negative light in TV, media, et cetera, than they are in real life. So I, I don't forget that at some one point it's like 30 percent higher or something like that. So let's say you've heard stereotypes about people. You've heard stories about people. You've seen images about people. And and your brain says records this in the memory center watch out for those kinds of people they might hurt you now you become a police officer and you find yourself with a young african-american man and you're trying to arrest and he moves suddenly and all of a sudden you feel this wave of danger coming up and you pull that trigger Hmm. and 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 so the same mechanism that has you that that reminds you eating those cookies isn't good for you stay away from them therefore i'm going to is the brain. I'm, I'm giving personality to the brain here just for for purpose of the argument or the uh, the explanation um the brain says to you no no i'm going to make you i'm going to make those smell bad to you i'm going to make them nauseate you a little bit because that'll stop you from eating them and therefore you'll be protected the same thing happens in the other domain in a slightly different way but it's the same basic mental function of the brain it's a, it's a learning function of the brain designed to keep us safe but it's built on unfortunately negative stereotypes that we have about a lot of people and therefore it it ends up being in some cases as we know tragic and and that's the thing that makes this even scarier when we look at media and, and the the old saying, uh, if, if it bleeds, it leads because that that's that's where we get a lot of this uh, uh, the, this priming effect on how we view the world is based on the media we consume and the media we consume is by and large more negative and more negative and more negative, and so that's a big way we get these negative stereotypes built up really quickly, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, this is, uh, this is one of the things that, that, that happens is, you know, we have these, um, you know, these, these images that are always in front of us um, and, you know, all of these, uh, you know, and let's, let's look, let's put it in the case of Jacob Blake, you know, or, or, um, you know, what we're seeing in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin right now, you know, so Jacob Blake has this incident um, and he's shot in the back seven times. Uh, obviously, you know, we can look at the video in this particular case and see what's happening because it's, it's it's on the video. And what do we have now? So we have some people who are finding a way to justify it. Well, he had a knife in his possession. It turns out the knife was in the car. He never brandished the knife with the police officers. He never, never, um, you know, use the knife or attack the police officers with the knife. But the important thing about the knife story and the reason it's become a meme now is because it allows us to hold those stereotypes in place. So for people who are uncomfortable, sometimes these days for political reasons, and sometimes just because it's inconsistent with the, with their own experience, um, who are uncomfortable with the notion that police officers may just have overreacted to this young black man and, and, shot, and shot him. Um, they're uncomfortable with that. Well, we need some justification. So we look for the justification. In this case, oh, well, 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 he had a knife. Yeah. But, you know, having a knife in your car is not a justification for being shot in the back seven times. But it allows the story to stay in place. And this is important for us to recognize. We want to keep our stories in place in our minds. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, the great economist, once said that most human beings, given a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary, will quickly go about refuting the evidence. And I think that's that's what we see a lot of times in circumstances like this. But it's important for us to know also, Earl, if I could continue for a moment, that we we see this in dramatic cases like Jacob Blake or George Floyd or you know, Michael Brown and Ferguson or certain circumstances like this, and we see this, but it also happens on an everyday basis. So so let's say I'm interviewing somebody for a position in my company, and they you know two people are, are being interviewed: one John who comes in in the morning, and the other Sally who comes in after lunch. And John comes in in the morning. And I have that feeling. It's not even a thought, but a feeling, something about this guy I like. And like I said earlier, it's, all, it's, it's after five seconds that I've had this feeling. So clearly it's not about him because I don't know anything about him yet. So, so obviously he's reminding me of somebody. Maybe he reminds me of a dear friend of mine who I played ball with or, you know, or, you know, a guy who, you know, I went to school with or whatever. But in any case, I have a positive kind of feeling. And I'm sure everybody listening has had that reaction with somebody. And so I ask him the first question of the interview and he's a little nervous and he hems and haws a little bit. 
without even thinking about it, I say, hey, John, look, relax, take a breath. Let me ask the question again. I know you're nervous. And he gets a second chance. And I do that just not not consciously, really, just out of an affinity for the guy. I, I, I have empathy for him because because I had a positive vibe from him, you know. And he gets a second chance. The interview goes great. And we go on. Sally comes in six hours later. And let's say it's not even one of those times when I have a negative vibe about her, although it could be. Let's say she reminds me of a, a girl who dumped me when I was in junior high school or something. Could be a negative thing. But let's say it's even more benign than that. I just happen to be busy. You know, it's been a really busy day. I've had one of those days that feels like a where you feel like a second grader, a, sec, a two year old rather running downhill trying to stay on their feet. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Meeting to meeting to meeting. I come in the office. I asked Sally the first question in the interview. She hems and haws a little bit. And this time I just sit there or even worse, I make one of those quick glances at my watch that she's not supposed to see. And now she's sweating bullets. And based on nothing more than the difference in that five second interaction at the beginning, these two interviews go to completely different directions. Right. And the next day somebody says, what do you think? And I say, well, he's bright, capable, easy to talk to. I think he fit in well here. She's okay. And I don't have any idea, no conscious idea that contributed anything to the way those interviews went. In fact, if you put me on a lie detector test, I would say that I interviewed them fairly and I would pass the test because I have no sense that anything that I do contributed, even though that five or 10 seconds at the beginning set those interviews on two completely different paths. And, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. And it's scary to, to think about that. And and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the work that uh, uh, Professor Barge has done. Yes. Uh, where he does a similar study, and he uses the the hot and the cold drink. Yes, yes. In fact, I I, I wrote about it in in, in the book. And right. Actually, I, I forget now. Maybe in that one or the more my first book, but but yeah, that's fascinating. You know, this notion of priming and how certain things that we're we're, we're not even aware of can prime us to have particular responses. Right. In that particular case, as you're saying, um, he gave he gave interviewers uh, hot or cold drinks to hold when they were interviewing potential employees and found that um, they were more likely to um, be positive about the person if they were holding a warm drink than if they were holding a cold drink. Right. Yeah. And, and pretty it, wild, it, huh? It, it is crazy. I mean, it, you know, I mean, in between, you know, uh, uh, the work that he has done and the work Daniel Kahneman's done and, and well, the work a lot of great people have done. Uh, yeah. it's just amazing how the human brain works. Like you, you were talking a lot about, you know, these kind of micro expressions and all that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dr. Paul Ekman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the stuff he did. And, and I would imagine all the show's been off the air for a while. Most people maybe remember his referencing his work in the TV sh- uh, series lie to me. Yes. Uh, but that was a great, I loved that show. And it's really what mm-hmm. got me into to his research. But like you said, it's these subtle things because he showed that these just like the twitch of an eye or the curl of the lip that you don't consciously perceive. And this is where we talk about unconscious biases, but they, they really influence so much about how you view that person. And like you said, you don't even realize what's doing it. Well, that's, I think, the thing that's important for us to recognize is that we never know everything is influencing us. I mean, another one of the studies, I'm sure you remember from Everyday Bias, um, is, was done by a guy named Don Redelmeyer, who's uh, at the University of Toronto Medical School. And Redelmeyer is actually a disciple of Daniel Kahneman's and uh, was a student of Daniel Kahneman's. And they, they studied medical school um, interviews, which are among the most competitive interviews people can get in because everybody who applies to medical school is smart and overwhelmingly most of them could potentially get in. So it's a fine line between who gets in and who doesn't, sometimes based on a very slight you know, issue that might come up. And what they did is they tracked the medical school interviews over, I think it was a seven year period um, against the weather reports on the day the students were interviewed. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that students who were interviewed on rainy days happened to um, they, you know, happened to come in on a rainy day just by the coincidence of the weather on the day they were interviewed, received interview ratings that were equivalent to it. They've gotten 10 percent less on their med cats. So if you happen to come in on a rainy day, I'm sitting here in the Washington, D.C. area today and it's pouring outside and I'm looking at the puddles and I'm thinking, what a mess out there. God, if I had to go anywhere, go to work, I'd walk through those puddles. I'd go to my car. My pants would probably get wet. I'd come into the office. I'd have to shake it all off myself. Then I sit down to do the interview that 
that affects my mood in doing the interview as opposed to yesterday, which is the most brilliantly beautiful, clear, sunny day, you know, lovely temperature. And all day long, it was like, it's springtime, you know, <laughs> that feeling. And that comes into the interview also. So so there's so many things that impact the way we interact with each other on a daily basis and sometimes a minute by minute basis that we have to be really conscious of these. Yeah. And, and it's so you, you mentioned some of the, the, the police issues uh, that we've had recently between Jacob Blake and George Floyd. And I mean, we can go all the way back. These aren't new things. I mean, uh, you know, one case that I wish more people knew about was uh, uh, there's a gentleman named Isaac Woodard, who was an army veteran uh, who discharged from the army, still in his uniform. Uh, I'm trying to remember the year. I'm going to say it was like 46 or 48 uh, mm-hmm. Still in his uniform. I think it was 1946. Like, it was right after the war. I remember reading about that. Right. It was in uh, South Carolina, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, right. It was a little town, uh, yeah. Batesville. Yeah. Uh, first, he thought mm-hmm. it was Aiken, but but when they looked at the route, it was he was actually in Batesville. Uh, but you know, the point of that is, is this like you said, this was right after the war. We had ticker tape parades for for our our veterans that were coming home, and. Here you have this African-American going home and basically he asked to use the bathroom and uh, the, the, the driver, kind of filling in the story for, for listeners here, uh, told him to sit down and he said, I really need to use the bathroom. And the, the driver got lippy with him and he said, you know, I'm a man. Talk to me like I'm a man. Stopped it in Batesville. The police take him off. See, he's getting belligerent with them in his army uniform. They beat him in the head until the guy goes blind. Yes. You know, so these aren't new issues that the country's facing, right? No, sadly, I think the only thing that's new is that we're recording them on video. You're recording them on our cell phones, and and um, you know, and and this is what a lot of folks, you know, who I know in the African American community say. You know, white people are so shocked because oh my god, all these incidents. I think this is important for us to recognize. There's a real difference in even how caring white folks see these kinds of incidents like the George Floyd incident or, you know, Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery or, you know, any of these incidents that, Rashawn, uh, you know, all of these things that have happened. Um, and, and that is that we tend to see them as uh, these, this list of terrible incidents. And, and this leads to this sort of bad apple way of looking at the police, like, oh, can we just get this, you know, these bad apples out of the police force? And if we if we can get Derek Chauvin out of the police force, then George Floyd wouldn't be dead. But for African-Americans, it doesn't live that way. For African-Americans, it's an all day, every day experience that for every George Floyd who gets caught on film, um, there are a 100 people who may not get caught on film. The incident may not get caught on film. The person might not die. Maybe they just get beaten up and, and, and maimed like uh, Isaac Woodard. Uh, maybe they just get harassed or hassled. Um, maybe they just get challenged and put down on the ground to, and inspected, even though they didn't do anything. Uh, and it has nothing to do also. It's not, you're not protected by your socioeconomic status. You know, I had a client here in the Washington, D.C. area. He was a senior leader in a major company that people would know about. Um, was earning over half a million dollars a year. He was one of their top three leaders and was living in um, a, Ken, a community called Kenwood, which is a high income community in the suburbs of Washington, predominantly white at the time. And um, and he told me one day in tears with the door closed in his office that that summer his son had been home from, I believe it was Princeton. It was an Ivy League school. I'm remembering Princeton. It's been about 15 years now. And he said his son was home for 10 weeks and during that 10 weeks, he the son was stopped four times coming in and out of his own neighborhood, driving driving his father's car, never charged with any crime because the only, quote, crime he committed was being a young black man driving an expensive car in a predominantly white neighborhood. And this man told me with tears in his eyes, he said, he said, what terrifies me the most is that my son's going to lose his temper at some point and something will happen and he'll end up being another story in the newspaper. No. And that's the thing that I think it's hard for people to understand, particularly for white folks to understand. When people talk about systemic racism, it's the everyday, always nature of this, the feeling of every time your 15-year-old or 16-year-old leaves the house that something may happen, every time they drive somewhere, um, the, the need that, that um, every black family I know has to teach their kids what to do if a police officer stops you in order to keep yourself safe, which I know I never had to worry about with my four sons who got, you know, who got their driver's license. So I think it, it's those, those subtleties that it's really hard sometimes to get across to people. 
Yeah, and you know the 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 tragedy of it all is is it's not. You know, it used to be like in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, the police force was predominantly white, and you could pretty much guarantee that it was going to be a white police officer doing it. But, yes. uh, you know, for instance, uh, I live outside of Indianapolis, and Sean Reed, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. officer who shot uh, him and, and made yes. this, this statement that uh, became kind of infamous with that, looks like it's going to be a closed casket, homie. Mm-hmm. That was a black police officer that shot him that way. Uh, yeah. We had the incident, uh, it didn't get a lot of traction, but there was an incident, I think it was the day after George Floyd, uh, down in um, Jackson, Mississippi, predominantly black area, uh, of the uh, black police officer having the young uh, African-American kid, uh, looked like he was maybe 16, 17 years old, kind of in the chokehold. And I'm not talking about like like the, the chokehold, like Eric Garner type, but I'm talking about they're face-to-face, and he's got his hands right. wrapped around the kid's neck. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the the thing is, is you, you brought up the word systemic. That That's when everybody, regardless of their background, is, is uh, engaging in the same behavior. And I'm, I'm using everybody as far as the people we know about, not every single police officer. Sure, sure. That's that's well, a I think, deeper problem. Yeah, and I and I think what people don't understand is people look at that incident and, and they'll say, well, you know, how could it be racism if, if the police officer is black? But I think what people don't understand is that um, racism also gets internalized um, among people who are of the, that particular race. So so a, a black police officer has seen the same negative stereotypes about young black men as a white police officer has seen, and they've embodied those stereotypes. And in fact, I've worked with a lot of police officers and, and many of the black police officers I've, I've um, uh, worked with have said this to me. They said, first of all, you know, not saying anything um, is a way of survival because if you say something, if you make a big deal about these things, then all of a sudden, are you sure that you're, you know, that the other police officers you're working with are gonna have your back. So you gotta be careful how much you say something. But even beyond that, you're part of the culture, you wanna fit in. And wanting to fit in means you sort of naturally, sometimes unconsciously, wanna go along with with um, the belief systems. And, and you see, you know, as a police officer, you see often the worst of humanity anyway. Um, and so you, you're, the, these biases, these um, stereotypes are constantly reinforced. And by the way, it's not, it's not only about, um, uh, race, this happens with gender too. For example, there's one study that was done uh, at uh, Yale University where they gave uh, science professors a resume of a potential lab assistant. And the lab assistants were exactly the same, except one was named John and the other Jennifer. Um, everything else about the resume was identical word for word. And they were asked to evaluate this particular person on a scale um, of one to seven as to how likely they would be to hire them. John I think rated about one 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 point five points higher than Jennifer. He was offered on average four thousand dollars more in salary and seen as somebody largely um, more likely to be able to be mounted, to be mentored and coached and the like. And the female professors' responses were almost identical to the male professors' responses, mm-hmm. even though it was obviously a sexist bias in, in the way this played out. Because again, what are the stereotypes we hear about women in science and men in science and and women? scientists, female scientists, and female professors absorb those same stereotypes. And so it doesn't mean that it's not racism. It means that racism or sexism are so powerful systemically that they even affect the views of the people who are in those same groups. So let, let me let me ask you this question. Um, so people are usually, because of, of what I do and, and, and the fact that I, I believe everything you're saying is true, uh, they're usually kind of shocked to find out that I'm a white Southern male conservative because that usually doesn't fit mm-hmm. the stereotype of people who believe in right. justice and equality, right? And right. the people that they like to throw kind of back in, in my face are like your Ben Shapiro's that, that will go out as boldly and say that unconscious biases are BS. If you they're unconscious, mm-hmm. how do you bring them to the consciousness? And it's all right. hokey. And, you know, what would you say – to somebody who says unconscious biases are BS, it's just, uh, you know, uh, a, a shtick. And how can people bring their unconscious biases to the surface so they're more aware of them? Well, I think, first of all, um, 
you know, it's unfortunate. One of the things is unfortunate. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, your political affiliation, because one of the things that's really unfortunate is that this conversation has been put so firmly in our political discourse. And, and we know no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on right now, um, that we gather data to support our support our point of view more than we determine our point of view based on data. Right. And so because of the fact that diversity and, and these issues has become a political issue for many people if they're on the conservative side, um, they immediately discount it without even paying attention to it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, you know, lambast diversity training, and they've obviously never been in diversity training because the things they're talking about have nothing to do with what, what happens in the training. You know, right. I had this happen recently. Um, I did a, a session with a, with a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Janetta B. Cole, who's, a, who's the current president of the National Council of Negro Women and formerly president of Bennett and Spelman College, the two historically black female colleges. And Dr. Cole was 80 years old, a remarkable woman. And we did a town hall meeting in the Treasury Department, which was just a conversation with one of their leaders who interviewed us on scene you know, in, in, on a, a Zoom format. And they opened it up voluntarily to their employees. 10,000 of their employees didn't listen to this. And we had this conversation for about an hour, an hour and a half. I forget exactly what it was. And then we put together a guide for people who wanted to have conversations about race. And it was a 16-page guide, and it included things like definitions like white privilege and white fragility, some of the terms that are out because we wanted people to know what those terms meant, right? And again, that was completely voluntary as well. It was posted on the website for anybody who wanted to download. But nobody was forced to participate in any of this. Well, some, you know, extreme, like, right guy um, got a hold of this thing. And and first of all, interestingly enough, I Dr. Cole out of the conversation completely because I think he was afraid to be accused of being racist by going after the black woman who was there. Instead, he decided to go after the white guy. Um, and um, and then completely changed the story about this whole thing. It was like it made it sound like we had dragged white men in front of the room and beat them with a stick or something for them <laughs> to do this. And, and the story ended up going viral and, you know, got passed from one person to another. And pretty soon, credible journalists are linking to the story, which was complete nonsense. It had nothing to do with it. You know, Laura, Laura Ingram interviewed him and all of this kind of stuff. And it had nothing to do with actually what happened in, in that session, which was our talking about. And actually, the, our theme was I need to listen to each other more that we need to get you know so so i think that the, the problem is that that happens so when i listen to something like ben shapiro who is you know who for me is a great example of somebody who's intelligent without a lot of emotional intelligence right. um, you know it, he's got a point to make you know and his point to make is all about him getting clicks him getting more people follow him and so the more the more you know provocative he can be the more you know poking people people's eyes the more people who are going to who are going to go to him and, and the sad thing is that we're in a culture right now where that's what draws people people on the extremes of both sides is what draws people rather than people who are being thoughtful yeah and and it you know and it doesn't have to be that way i mean it's like mm. <laughs> that that that's what my my business partner he's a little bit more on the liberal side and african-american male so we have conversations mm -hmm. very uh very deep conversations on these topics quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And we always come back to the same conclusion is that we believe that there's more Americans like us than there are like the ones who uh, are, are shown on national TV as having to be far right wing or far left wing. And, and the middle has become kind of a dirty word, right? Right. It's like you said, it bleeds at least. And, and, and I think it's it, it's very sad. You know, you go to other countries, like you go to the UK, for example, and there are a lot of conservatives there who support diversity because it's basic business. You know, you, right. you've got a city like London, which is the one of the most diverse cities in the world, if not the most diverse city. If you're running a business in London and you're not paying attention to diversity, you're just going to lose business. You know? You're going to lose the quality employees you want to have. You're going to have a culture in your company that doesn't work very well. So I don't care whether you're politically liberal or politically conservative. You want your business to work and be successful. You're going to have to pay attention to these issues here we've thrown everything in the political uh, the interpretation of it and it's and it's making it so much more difficult for us to work with this yeah no i mean what you said is exactly it so the way we kind of talk about ourselves is i'm a leadership expert with uh an interest in diversity and inclusion he's a diversity and inclusion yep. expert with a a interest in leadership and yeah, that's what I that's tell folks. That's a great folks. combination. <laughs> right? And that's what I tell folks. Look, like, I don't care if you if you believe in diversity and inclusion or not. These are the things that successful teams do. 
They, they understand the people that they need on their team. They put the right people on the team to set themselves up for success, regardless of what these, these differentiators are that you think that you can't live with. Don't cut yourself short because of these biases that you aren't even aware of. And, and, and again, let's uh, kind of circling back to the police issue again. Yeah, I think that is the thing. Like, like some narratives have it painted that, you know, uh, the vast majority of cops are racist and they wake up in the morning and, and, and their sole purpose is to, to be as mean to black people and maybe even shoot somebody and get away with it if they can. And that's not the case. I mean, I'm sure it's the case for some, maybe. There, there are some bad people who've gotten in the uniform. But right. when you see these incidences... And, and I try to break it down. My background in the Marine Corps, I try to look at the tactical part of it and, and what they're doing. I see two individuals, sometimes in, in like the Floyd case and some of the others, you have three or four police officers and one individual. But what I see is people who are afraid of one another. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that That's simple. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and let's think of it this way. You know, let's say... Somebody told you, hey, watch out. There are people walking around your neighborhood and they're soliciting and, um, and they're, or they're pretending like they're soliciting, but they're really trying to beat you up and rob you. And you know, they're six foot five. It, the, the, the person is six foot five and he, he's, you know, follically impaired. He's balding and he's uh, you know, an older guy with, with great hair on his temples and, uh, you know, relatively thin. And uh, watch out because he's really dangerous. And then you get your neighborhood watching says, watch out. There's this guy who's coming around your neighborhood and he looks this way. And um, and then you, you read in the newspaper, oh, another guy, another family beaten up by this guy who's six foot five and follow the impaired da, 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 white guy that looks like this. And, and, you know, you see this six or seven times. And then then the next day I knock on your front door and you open the door and there you see this guy who's six foot five and follically impaired and got a little gray in the temple. Are you not going to have a momentary pause at least and say, "Uh Oh, you know, of course you are. Cause that's a natural way that the brain puts things together as we were saying before. Well, this is what people, you know, what people don't realize. And this is where we're talking about in terms of systemic racism, you know, over the course of 400 years in our society, and think about that. That's 20 generations we've created what Brian Stevenson, the great rights lawyer, calls a narrative of racial difference. You know, so this narrative of racial difference says that white people are better, safer, um, more industrious, you know, all the positive qualities than people of color, particularly African-Americans, you know. So how do we how do we keep that that um, narrative in place well we put structures and systems in to reinforce it so we have voting rights that allow certain people to vote more than others we have we make loans available more available to people because they're more dependable to pay those loans so it's easier to get a housing loan over time um, we have residential segregation where certain people can live either de jure or de, fa- or de facto sometimes it's no longer allowed by law but that doesn't mean it still doesn't happen as we all know right? right so this is a place where people like those like that are supposed to live we have different policing practices as we've seen and so all of the access issues and all of this stuff and so how does it show up well it shows up in terms of outcomes and so fewer african-americans graduate from college than white people because fewer african-americans have access to quality schools um you know fewer african-americans are in better paying jobs um therefore their income is lower we know that that african-americans have higher rates of unemployment i mean we can go through all of the different meters all of these outcomes come out and what do we do we look at these outcomes and you say we see they are less than us and so it becomes this this confirmational bias pattern of you know our belief systems actually create structures that reinforce belief systems over and over again and when you do that for 20 generations pretty soon it's it's the language i like to use or it's concealed by its obviousness it's mm-hmm. just it's like the the fish to water it's just in the air that we breathe that 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 is like that right well and and so with all that um your opinion is there a direct correlation between all of this and how uh Law enforcement has, I don't want to say everywhere, but for the most part, stopped getting out in the communities as much as they used to and staying in their car. Very much so. And um, and I think this is, the, I think it's unfortunate that, um, 
you know, when people that people have used this language of defund the police to speak to this, because defund the police does not really mean what a lot of a lot of people are saying it means, which is we're going to just, you know, eliminate police officers and everybody's out out there by themselves trying to make this work. What people who are talking about the defund the police movement are really talking about shifting the focus of the police, because we know that, you know, it used to be. And I remember when I was growing up in, in living in the city in Washington, D.C., we had local police officers. People actually knew the police officers' names. They would, you know, they would stop by and come by if you were playing basketball and sometimes shoot hoops with you or, or you know, and, and um, you know, particularly in the white communities, obviously. And it was, it was de- definitely different in the black communities, but it was still more so than now. And, and so people knew you know there's an old saying you know i've been saying for years that when we know each other for who we are we treat each other like uh, when we know each other for who we are we treat each other less like what we are you know and so if i know somebody as a person their race their gender their your background doesn't mean as much to me because i know them as john or sam or paul but when i don't know them as a person then those stereotypes play a bigger role and and so the more we knew police officers as people and the more they knew us as people the more the police officer might call the parents say hey your kids down the street you should probably check on them or something like that now of course the militarization of the police which really started to happen especially in the 90s um, and the well, actually, it started earlier. Started really during Nixon's war on crime, and then and then really picked up in the eighties and nineties. Um, has created this this sense that the police are coming into communities armed to the teeth, wearing literally wearing armor, um, often helmets as opposed to hats, um, and um, they come in like a military force. And and you know, uh, Dr. Obi, who I talked about earlier, has actually done studies and found that when you put people in those kind of uniforms with armoring, the empathy centers of the brain decrease. And so mm-hmm. instead of looking at these as, as uh, community members who I'm trying to peacefully help, I now see them as potential enemies. And who's the enemy out there? Well, if this young man moves too fast or runs away from me, he's the enemy. So I launch into my military mode. And, and we've seen how lethal that can be. And so you're absolutely right that shifting to more of a community policing model where the police are involved with the community, get to know the community, is is one way that we can potentially begin to to disengage some of this police violence. Yeah, and and it it, it works the other way too, right? I mean, the the, yes. the the community is less likely to quote act out uh, whatever that may be if if they know the sure. police in their area. Yeah, sure. I mean, if we look at something like Ferguson, you know, if you remember Darren Wilson's. Um, interview the cop who shot Michael Brown that his interview um, you know one of his interviews he said we were going into this community we knew they we knew they didn't like us that was Mm -hmm. what he's saying speaking about the black community because there was a whole history in the black community of Ferguson about white police officers being abusive to to African Americans particularly young people so we know he had that mindset and then we look at Michael Brown this 18-year-old African-American man, and we can only project, obviously, because sadly he died, but we could project, what did he see when he saw this white cop call to him? Well, he probably, you know, it's not a far-fetched to say, yep, he probably said, oh, here we go again, another one of these SOBs. So he starts, to, so like you said, he has a certain hostility in the defense of this, and those two expectations come together, and it's like a match hits gasoline at yeah. that moment. Well, I'll tell you, um, a few episodes back, I had uh, Chief Jason Armstrong, the new uh, chief of police for Ferguson, on my show. Uh, and and wow. that city is in really good hands with, with, with him because he believes exactly what we're talking about here, about getting out in the community and building those bonds. And, and uh, you know, you, you mentioned for a second uh, the, the, the defund uh, police thing. And, and I agree with you. That's, that's kind of what I've said about it is. If somebody looks at me and says, I want to defund the police, by, meaning I want to get rid of police or reduce, I'm not on board with that. Right. But if you want to take the money away from the, the military-grade equipment, which they have, and in my opinion, this is my opinion again, as a Marine, that stuff is a place on the streets of, of Baghdad and, and Afghanistan, not so much here. That There was a time where... SWAT teams were the only ones that had anything besides a revolver, a shotgun, and a billy club. Yeah. Uh, I'm all for that. Let's move that money and, and get police better trained in, on, on some of these social issues. You show up to a, a domestic assault case, and there's a kid there. One cop doesn't know how to handle an, an abusive spouse. 
the emotional strain to, to help the spouse that's being abused and the skill set to deal with the child that's there that's going through what they're going through. We need cops that can do, different cops that can do those things, but one cop is not a Swiss Army knife. I don't think any person could really handle the, the mental stress of that situation, right? Yeah, right. And and I think that, you know, sadly, when you look at this situation, you know, when you look at this defund the police situation, it feeds right into what we were talking about earlier, Earl, which is during this political season, people are looking to make hay. They're looking to find anything they can to get an edge politically. And so, you know, so you have, you know, a whole, you know, a whole group of people who are consciously trying to you know, convince people that this defund the police movement isn't what it is um, and that it does mean just, you know, getting rid of the police because it feeds a political narrative that, you know, anybody who supports that is for anarchy in the streets. Um, and, and you know, that's the sad thing is that, um, you know, our, the, the actual, the destruction of our political system um, that we see happening right before our eyes is contributing to more and more of this happening rather than less and less. Whereas our politicians should be helping us deal with this. And sadly, they're, they're making it worse. Mm. Um, are you familiar with uh, a gentleman named Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman? No, I don't believe so. Okay. So, and this is where I want to kind of tie back into something we just said a minute ago when we were talking about the, the, the studies on, on, just putting police in, in uh, that type of armor and, and the empathy centers and that. Uh, so David Grossman, he's, a, he's an Army veteran. Um, he, he, he's a psychologist. And several years ago, I'm trying to remember when his first book came out, the, the title of it is On Killing. Mm. And he wanted to set out and answer the question, what could create the conditions where one human being would be capable of killing another human being. And so through the book, he, he cites all these statistics of, of, uh, of men at war uh, from all the way from ancient Roman times up to the American Revolution, through the Civil War, to Vietnam, and so on and so forth, and, and the psychological impact it has on people in those situations. But his, his premise came down to the only way one human being can kill another human being is to stop seeing them as a human being. Mm. And yep. that, to me, is where being oblivious to these biases, being oblivious to the things that are influencing us is the most dangerous because that that's how we get overtly trained to not see other human beings as human beings. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. You know, I think it's true. You know, I it's funny. I am, you know, I live uh, we have a little farm uh, outside of D.C. It's a 15 acre place uh, outside of D.C. It's our primary residence. And we have an apartment in the city. And my neighbor um, at our farm it, it lives across the way and he keeps he keeps some cows on our property because we have a little more land than than he does. And so we, we let him he keeps our grass eaten down and he gets a place for his cows. And and uh, one day I was saying to him, his name is Buck. I was saying, so Buck, what, you know, what, do you, what are the names of the cows? And he says, they don't have names. They're beef cattle. And I said, what do you mean? They, what does that have to do with anything? He says, you don't name things you're going to eat. Mm. <laughs> he yeah. says, because if you name them, it's harder to eat them. You know, <laughs> and they right. develop, you, you, you begin to uh, attribute a personality. So, so I think that there's some truth to that. I mean, I think that, that um, you know, we, we don't want to, um, you know, the more we know about something, the more we, the more we humanize something, um, the easier it, it, the harder it is for us to treat them as less than human. This is why it's no accident that the Nazis referred to Jews as vermin or in Rwanda, the, the Tutsis were referred to as cockroaches, or, um, we call, we, you know, we call Vietnamese gooks or, you know, all of these names, we often, we often come up with these dehumanizing names for the enemy. And it's also, by the way, why fraternizing with the enemy is considered because if you fraternize with the enemy and you realize they're just human beings like you who have wives and and husbands and daughters and sons and mothers and fathers, then it's going to be, you know, a little bit hard for you to pull that trigger if you have to, to defend yourself or defend your platoon. So, so um, you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a part of the equation as well. Yep. Um, so before we, we start to, to kind of close out here, um, we, we've talked a lot about of unconscious biases and, and hopefully listeners are a little bit more at the very least open to the idea uh, that they're being influenced them. Although we both agree that they absolutely are. 
Mm-hmm. How can somebody who wants to become more aware of the influence that these biases are having on them, is is there a simple tip or trick that you've got to help people become more aware? So there is no simple trick, Earl. Um, I wish I could tell people that if you, you take this pill that you know we can all of a sudden be very aware of everything. But we're always going to have some blind spots. It's the nature of human beings. But I think number we could do, first of all, so we want to stop feeling like um, that we should be beyond bias and realize that every human being has, we all have biases towards something. And our job is not to feel guilty or to beat ourselves up, but to take responsibility for it, to try to make healthier, fairer decisions. So that's the first part. If we could make, if we could be aware the biases are there, we're more likely to see them. The second thing we can do is to start watching certain patterns. Like are there certain people we feel more comfortable with and others we feel less comfortable with? Are there certain people who we tend to always gravitate towards um, and others who we gravitate away from? You know, those kinds of patterns will help us see that there are certain things, there are certain um, patterns that we've established in our mind. And then the third is, um, in our certainly in our organizations, in a business setting, to put systems and structures in place that, are, that can allow us to mitigate the biases that are there. One of the most kind of well-known examples of that is what's happened uh, with orchestras now. You know, uh, for years, up to 1980, only 12% of the musicians in orchestras around the world, major, major symphony orchestras around the world, were women. Now that number is over 40%. Well, what happened? They changed the fundamental way they, they audition people. One thing was they used to only audition people by invitation so that, you know, let's say the, you know, you'd have a violinist, second violinist was leaving and the, um, you know, the conductor would say, well, I heard this guy from the Philadelphia orchestra. Let's get him in to, to audition. But now, now you can send in music clips so you can actually invite yourself into the audition. The second thing they did was rather than just have one person evaluate the person, they now have panels. So you usually have now a handful of people, often representing different points of view, who can who can evaluate. So it's no longer limited to just one person. And then the most important thing they did is they started to have people auditioned behind screens and on rugs. So you couldn't, you know, at first they just had screens, but you could still hear women's high heel shoes. And that was a dead giveaway. So then they put a rug in. So now people are actually auditioning the music rather than the musician. And since that happened, they've more than tripled the number of people, the number of women in the symphony orchestras. And so there are all kinds of ways. In fact, in Everyday Bias, in my book, there's 17 pages in the appendix of different ways that you can change business talent management systems to make to have them easier to mitigate bias. Oh, yeah. No, that, that story, uh, uh, the story of Abby Conant is one that I think everybody who is in a hiring position should know. Uh, her, her, her story is, it's, it's, Tragic and sad, all at the same time. Uh, you're familiar with her, right? Yes, she was a trombonist, I believe, wasn't she? Yes, yep. And, and you know, the sad part about that is they did some of these things that, that you're talking about there, but if the way she tells the story is her audition was so good that the, the uh, orchestra can, uh, director stopped the audition at her and sent everybody else home. And when he came back to meet the person he selected and saw it was a woman, he said in German, because it was uh, the Munich Symphony Orchestra, if I remember right. Right. Oh, my God, I picked a woman. What have I done? Right. (laughs) But her audition was so good, so literally show-stopping, that he stopped and sent everybody else home and picked her right on the spot. But -hmm. because she was a woman, he regretted his decision immediately. Uh, and that that was like that was like thirty or forty years ago, wasn't it? In the eighties or something right. like that. I think yep. I think it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 you know that's how, look that I mean there are lots of African Americans I know who tell similar stories about um, calling for an apartment and um, because they, their voice and I'm saying this in air quotes doesn't sound black because their syntax their language doesn't sound black. Um, the person on the phone didn't know they were African-American, told them there was an apartment, an apartment available. And then when they got to the apartment, they, they walk in the door and the person says, I called and said, oh, we're sorry, that apartment got rented while you were, you know, since we talked to you. Oh, you know, yeah. Very similar kind of experience that many, many people have had. My, uh, one of my friends, he, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's in a mixed uh, marriage. And, mm-hmm. and he's he's got family from Mississippi, and, and he's you know kind of the same vein, right? Uh, he, he's African American, she's white, 
but they went to a restaurant there and when they pulled, you know, he placed the order at the drive-thru uh, box and when they pulled to the front, he said that he heard the lady and it was a, it was a black lady uh, at the window. Oh, that's why he talks like that. As soon as they saw his wife sitting in the seat, because he, like you said, he quote, didn't sound black, they automatically associate the fact that he's married to a white woman is why he doesn't sound black anymore. So yeah, it's, but that's why I like your book. Everybody is biased. It's not Mm -hmm. just a white thing. It's not just a black thing. It's not just a Asian thing. It's everybody has them. Yes. Even Ben Shapiro. Even Ben (laughs) Shapiro, whether he believes it or not. Uh, Well, sir, we are sitting here at about 55 minutes or so. And uh, I know you're a busy fellow, uh, and I know we covered a lot of space here. Uh, but before we close out for, for good, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on? Well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of that we didn't touch on. But I think that the one thing that I'd like to leave people with, um, you know, in, in terms of this conversation, especially given where we are right now, is that this is a time. Um, the time that we're in right now is is really a perfect storm around some of these issues. You know, we've got all of the tension in our political system and particularly um, the um, the sort of coming out of the shadows of white supremacy over the last few years, um, stuff that we thought had been dead for a long time in our culture, or many people thought had been dead for a long time in our culture. All of these repeated incidents with the police and particularly African-Americans and um, and then, you know, of course, all the tension from COVID and, uh, you know, the, the stress that it's caused us, not to mention the impact of COVID on uh, particularly on communities of color and the inordinate you know, negative impact that's had on communities of color. And I think this has raised the issues right up to the surface. And, you know, the George Floyd murder was so in our faces that I think it's it shifted our conversation um, about systemic racism. I know that the Washington Post revealed a poll recently um, that I think was a Gallup poll that showed 69% of Americans now believe that there is systemic racism in the policing system of our country. And just six years ago after Ferguson, that number was only 46%. So we're, we're at a particularly unique place. And what I would say is that this is the time for us to do deep listening. Um, it's a time for especially those of us who are in the dominant community and the white community to stop being uh, defensive about this and and really just to try to understand what it must be like uh, for African-Americans to live in a country um, that has treated them the way it has for 400 years and to reach out and talk to people and to listen to people and and then to tell the truth to oneself about you know, some of the blind spots that we know that we have and the discomfort that we know that we have, because it's only when we do that kind of listening and self-reflection that we're going to not only uh, build the kind of country that we say that we want to be, but also have the kinds of businesses and communities that we want to live in where everybody can really have an opportunity to be successful for their own value. Outstanding. No, I I love that. And uh, you know, again, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, the guest, Howard J. Ross. The book is uh, the, the revision of Everyday Bias, which I highly, highly suggest that you go out and grab a copy because it is very well written, very well put together, lots of great examples of how these biases affect our decision-making, how our brain works. Um, with that, if listeners are curious to find out more uh, maybe reach out and, and contact you. Maybe they want you to come speak somewhere or mm-hmm. something. What is the best way for somebody to get a hold of you? Um, thanks, Earl. They can reach me at howardjross.com um, or at udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A dot com. And um, I'm also um, uh, represented by um, APB, um, the Speakers Bureau. So that's another way they can reach me. And, and Earl, I just want to thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation very much. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's uh, when the opportunity came to schedule this interview, I, I jumped at it because uh, yeah, I really enjoy the work that, that you do. Uh, keep it up. Um, I'm looking forward to, to whatever happens next. And so I, I'm just, I'm humbled by the fact that you are a guest on the podcast. So thank you for that. Uh, Thanks. Listeners, I know uh, this one has ran kind of maybe a little bit on the long side, but not too long. I hope you've stuck with us because there's a lot of really great information here. Um, I'll have links to the book. I'll have links to the website. 
so you can you can do some more uh, deep diving on your own. And I strongly encourage you to do that. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me uh, on the show, you can reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. Be sure you're uh, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show so all the guests can get uh, maximum exposure. We really want to spread these messages and, and help these people reach as many people as possible. And rating uh, the show, reviewing the show helps with all those algorithms to get us up there. With that, thank you for sticking with us. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast. Electricast.